Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So John, we, one of the things we've mentioned in the past is our love of documentaries, particularly design-oriented documentaries. And we've mentioned things like Objectified and, and Helvetica. And recently you had the opportunity as one of the Kickstarter backers of Design Canada to see an early showing of it here in Ottawa. What uh, what did you have to, to say about that? And what, what did you feel about that documentary when you finished watching it? Yeah, this was actually a, a documentary we, we alluded to back in episode 12 when we talked a bit about Objectified and, and Helvetica by Gary Hustwit. And this is actually a, another film that Gary Hustwit has worked on. So he was the executive producer on Design Canada. And uh, I was fortunate, alongside your, your wife of all people, I was surprised to see her there, to be among the first thousand or so people to actually catch a screening of this documentary. And uh, I would highly recommend it to anyone to go and check out once uh, you, you have an opportunity either to see an actual screening live or, or once it hits video distribution format of your choice. It uh, was a very inspiring and, and galvanizing film. In Design Canada, presumably it was uh, around Canadian design, but what what is the what was the focus of this uh, of this film? So the progenitor of the the film, Greg Durrell, he sort of alludes to this period in the the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies as the golden age of Canadian design, and in a lot of ways, I think he is correct in saying that. Mind you, some of the the designers who were were in the audience uh, might contest that. A little bit, <laughs> or may, may have taken a bit of offense to that, but it it really is just this age and, and period in Canada's history where Canada came into its own and, and found its identity and sort of stepped out from under the the legacy that it had as a, a colony of Great Britain. And actually, up up until the 1960s, our flag was not really much of a flag at all. It was, it was very heavily influenced by the colonial era and actually featured the Union Jack on it. That was very striking to me as, as well. And I would just say it almost brought a tear to my eye, the, the flag portion of, of the film. Now, that's something a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that the Canadian flag, and in fact, our, our national anthem as well, they're not particularly old. Uh, most, most nations, you know, we we're 150 years old uh, last year. And most nations this age are, have had their own flags and and anthems for considerably longer than we have. But we're we're still in sort of the 50, 60 year range for both of those. So there are people alive who do remember the debates about whether we should change the flag and, and what we should do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly glad that they did change the flag. And I'm, <laughs> I'm very glad that they, they landed on the particular design that they, they did. So it was Lester B. Pearson. Uh, he put forth a, a bill uh, back on June the 15th, 1964, that the, the flag bill was put into motion. And he was leaning towards uh, a triple maple leaf, quite ornate look to it. And he got some lashback for that. Fortunately, by some miracle, uh, a, a committee was put together. And uh, just a few months later, in, in early 1965, uh, the Canadian flag was born in its much simpler, much pure, very well-designed 
flag as you basically distilled the maple leaf down as simple as you can while still remaining much of its its essence and its charm. I mean, there's certainly been designers since then who have simplified the, the maple leaf even more and made it even more stylized, but uh, you lose a, a little bit of its its essence. And I think uh, that the, the team here did uh, an admirable job of coming up with a, a flag that, that was representative of Canada. And actually, the way that they came to settle on the maple leaf was, was very interesting as well. They went through it and touched on it a little bit in the, the documentary. And I, I wasn't as familiar with it, but it was sort of a, a grassroots thing in that European settlers had sort of identified with this maple leaf or, or identified the country with, with the maple leaf and the maple tree. And uh, early settlers depended on, on maple syrup and, and all that. And this just came to be something that represented Canada in both world wars. People would sew patches on their uniforms or, you know, spray paint it on a plane or a, a tank and things like that to, to represent Canada and, and have that, that solidarity. Yeah, it's certainly an easily recognizable symbol, and it's something that we still use, obviously, when we travel. I know I usually have a maple leaf of some kind on my bag or whatever, just to make it easy for people to recognize that I'm Canadian. So it's certainly something that's that's well-recognized, and it's very, very easy to pick out, even if it's small. And of course, the film pointed out the, the old trope that uh, many Americans will slap on a Canadian flag when they're traveling abroad because they find they, they get treated better. Yeah, they do. I was really, really heartened and, and inspired and then was, was proud of, of my country, uh, seeing the, the way that the flag came together. A lot of the aspects of the film, I think, did a very good job of, of capturing Canada and, and what it is to be Canadian. They did a, a, an excellent job of making sure there was uh, diversity in footage and the faces uh, that appeared on screen while also not shying away from some of the ways where where we could have been better in the past in, in our dealings with people who originally lived here in this country and then sort of the, the native affairs, as well as addressing periods in our, our history where you know, white immigrants were favored and periods where women weren't treated as well as, as they ought to have been, which is it's actually just intrinsic in the era uh, that the film looks at itself. It was primarily white males who were, were running the design scene at the time, uh, but they did a good job of, of bringing women in as well, and particularly some, some more modern female designers of different ethnicities to be able to speak to to that era and, and where things stand now, and and sort of their, their sense of the, the design scene growing up. And all in all, it saves a very, very nostalgic film for me to watch, because it, it imbued all these symbols I had grown up with, with a deeper sense of, of meaning and, and purposefulness. And there's a lot of things that uh, I may have just taken for granted. Yeah. Growing up or walking around in my day-to-day -day life suddenly uh, are, are infused with more meaning and, and deeper purpose. And you can understand what the thoughts that were, that went into them. Right. Yeah, we were, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, and but I'm still not old enough to have been alive during Expo 67 in Montreal, which was one of the big catalysts for a lot of this design. Uh, however, mm -hmm. the ripple effects of that era, the, the late 60s design, definitely echoed through 
the 70s when I was growing up. And, and it was everywhere, you know, everything from the way that the government of Canada was branded to a lot of corporations, the Olympics, uh, you know, in the 80s when we had the, um, the, the Calgary Olympics. A, a lot of sort of that design language of Canada definitely carried on through those decades. So it's definitely my childhood. And, you know, the, the, just the little bits and pieces of the, the video that I've seen uh, sort of some of the promo stuff. It, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it because it definitely is very nostalgic of of my childhood and growing up in Canada. And I don't think it's something that a lot of people outside of Canada will necessarily realize until they go back and see this stuff. Like I don't think they'll realize just how how iconically Canadian some of this stuff is. Hmm. That's another thing I should should mention as well that I, I really appreciate what. Uh... Greg Drell did in, in putting this film together and bringing design documentary titan like Gary Hustwit on board. He was actually able to uh, film some some footage with Massimo Vignelli commenting on on some of the the logos that were were designed here in Canada. And uh, unfortunately, Massimo has passed away just a, a few years ago. But he was um, he's a very big name in the world of design and iconography. And he has quite a slew of iconic American brands that he created their identity for. And just seeing him in his commentary on things like the the CN logo for the Canadian National Railway and then the logo for, you know, the province that, that I grew up in and his commentary on the fact that it got ruined by the by the liberals re rebranding <laughs> in the early 2000s there and i, I agree with him 100 percent on that uh, i'm all aboard the the previous logo uh for ontario and in fact you can still see that that logo uh, on all sorts of sure. buildings and, and signs and things and i noticed actually just last night driving along the highway there's a big Big building here in the capital that that still has the old Ontario logo, that uh, a trillium that uh, is still glowing in, in bright white on on the side of it. But uh, the, the the new one just uh, doesn't hold a candle to the old one. Yeah, you're not a not a fan of the modern version. You mentioned the uh, the logo for the the Olympics there. One of the interesting things that I learned about that from from this documentary too is just uh, that. It, represented you know the olympics of course and having the olympic rings there and then there's uh, the podium coming up out of those and then a, a race track as well all that sort of integrated in in one single piece of identity as a, a a logo mark and uh on the, the word mark side of things the the canada word mark that was designed by by jim donahue and anywhere you see canada written in any sort of official capacity from paperwork that's floating around in you know, government halls here in the capital to the, the sides of ships that are, are patrolling our shores. Yeah. And it's funny how many people think that uh, like modern designers, when you, uh, when you start talking to, to people who deal with uh, graphic design in the government here in Canada, and it's funny how many designers think that that's something that they can change, but that word mark is, that's that's off limits. You can't change that at all, and that that hasn't changed since it was uh, since it was created. But it's funny how many designers try and make changes to that to modernize it a little bit. And 
and and it's like no that's you you are not allowed modifying that in any way shape or form yeah and it's instantly recognizable uh, wherever you see it it's, it's again one of those things you just sort of grow up with as roman mars might put it it's it's 99 invisible it's stuff you don't even think about but uh, something about that particular word mark that i was surprised to learn uh, was that it was based on the the typeface baskerville he just took that that typeface set it slightly heavier and then another little surprise in there which i had never cut on to but uh, it's absolutely obvious now looking at it is that he used the the stick on the d as a, a flagpole upon which to fly the canada flag so that the canada word mark is essentially the the word canada in a, a typeface that's similar to to baskerville which is a, a serif typeface and then over the a at the end of canada is the canadian flag and uh, it's yeah iconic and then as well there's the all the government signage all all across the the country it also has a, a design language behind it that was very intentional something that warmed my heart and made me proud about that too is that came about at a period in time where there were some rifts in the country i mean there still are to some extent between quebec and and the other provinces uh, and they were very intentional about putting the french language uh, front and and center and giving it the, the exact same amount of space and presence uh, as english on pretty much everything that they were putting out so all the government signage uh, it's all built on this nice grid system and there's always english and the french side by side not one above the other that was a, a very unifying gesture that was put forward by the, the government at the time and then another thing i learned that wasn't actually in the the film but in the the q a session afterwards that came up is that uh, the name of the film design canada is actually it, it harkens back to an actual department in the government that was design canada uh, that was a, a government body that's also a contributing factor to this sort of golden age of, of canadian design is that uh, the government prioritized it as a, a part of sort of coming into our own and, and finding our identity as a country there was a quote that stuck out to me which was to say the most with the least and i found that re- really resonated with me yeah certainly one of the one of the key elements of a lot of that is that just its minimalism a lot of that design from the uh, from the time and counter to that minimalism was uh, i think a very good balance in the the film was heather cooper who's one of the, the few female designers who was in the film and actually played quite a big role in the documentary. Mm. And she was responsible for designing the Roots logo, which is an iconic bit of, mm. of Canadian branding as well. And they certainly benefited as a brand from being front and center at the, the Olympics year after year as a, an official sponsor and an official outfitter of the Canada's Olympic team and uh, another neat piece uh, from the film on on the Olympic front was the the design of the 1972 Team Canada hockey jersey which was designed uh, not by a Canadian but an an Englishman who'd who'd come to to live in Canada John Lloyd uh, who actually really uh, didn't know much about hockey at all but he he designed this uh, iconic jersey that uh, showed the Canadian maple leaf from the flag, which was quite young at the time, still only you know, six, seven years old uh, at that point in time, and just very 
prominence on the front of the jersey. And uh, one of the conditions uh, from the Olympics uh, for all the jerseys from all the countries that the, the country's name had to be very prominent as well. And this kind of flew in the face of, of the particular design that he had, had come up with. So rather than having the athletes' names on the back of the jersey, every single member of the men's hockey team that year had Canada written where their their last name would normally be on their jersey. Interesting. Which is very, very unifying as well. Yeah. All in all, uh, it was a great film. I'd, I'd highly recommend checking it out if you have the chance. And, uh, you know, maybe it's just the, the nostalgia in me, but uh, I would say I actually enjoyed watching it more than, than I did objectified. Hmm, interesting. I'm curious to see that, and I, I didn't get a chance to go out to it. I, I know uh, Tamara and her friend Sue went out to see it at the same showing that you were at. I unfortunately wasn't uh, wasn't able to make it to it, but I, I'm certainly looking forward to when it gets released digitally, which I expect is probably going to be a little ways down the road at this point, just because uh, they'll probably try showing this at film festivals and whatnot over the next year or so. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a little while before we, we see this as a digital uh, download somewhere or on Netflix or something like that. Well, you were a, a backer of, of the new Rams film that's that's coming out, and uh, yes. I missed out on that one. So we'll, we'll have to have a, a screening of that one uh, at some point. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I won't be anywhere that the uh, the Rams film is going to be uh, showing, I don't think, any of the early, uh, early showings of it, which is too bad, because I, I certainly am looking forward to that one. Uh, that's uh, I'm a huge Dieter Rams fan. Maybe we'll sit down and watch uh, Design Canada and Rams, and we'll do a double header or something because it's. I think Rams is is due for release later this year. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get a digital download of both of them somewhere uh, somewhere around the end of the year. Hmm. Well, I'm all in on that. Uh, interestingly, I don't know why it jumped out at me, but in the the closing credits of the film, uh, there's a children's book illustrator and and author named John Classen from, from Winnipeg. And, and he wrote some fairly popular children's books that are, are called This Is Not My Hat and I Want My Hat Back. And my my kids in particular have, have really enjoyed them, but it was neat to see that uh, he was one of the, the big backers uh, or bigger backers behind the, the film and just, just spotted his name, name there in the credits. And uh, another... Canadian children's book author and illustrator that has crossed my radar recently is Julie Kralis, who I believe authored and illustrated Armadillo in Paris and Armadillo in York, among some other books. Uh, but the reason she popped onto my radar was because of some watches that she has drawn. And uh, what did you think of these when you saw them? Yeah, this I, I had no idea about Julie's work. And it's funny, I've seen some of her work without knowing that this is uh, that, that she was the one who created this. Uh, but she's doing these fabulous drawings of watches and incredibly lifelike drawings of, of watches at a large scale with pencil. And uh, her work is just absolutely incredible. I am, uh, I'm hugely impressed with this. And as with so many of these kinds of things, I, I had no idea that she was working out of Canada and that uh, working out of Toronto, in fact, that we had somebody doing this kind of thing. But it, yeah, this drawing that she did of the A. Langenson uh, uh, datagraph is uh, something that I've definitely seen before and is absolutely fabulous. Uh, the detail that she's putting into these is just uh, just incredible, but I've definitely started following her on Instagram now, and I, I'm going to keep an eye on her because this, uh, this is amazing stuff. Yes, absolutely. And uh, actually, she has recently posted some prints of the uh, Paul Newman Daytona and uh, an Omega Seamaster for sale on her website. So if you'd like to... 
have the the rare chance to hang one of these these pieces on your wall, uh, she uh, has made it possible to do that. Now they aren't inexpensive, uh, but uh, considering the the work involved on the order of two to to three hundred hours of work for each piece, uh, the detail in them is just astounding. Did you end up cutting into that case band at all yet? No, I haven't. Uh, I haven't cut into it yet. I need to do a couple of other things because I need to make a uh, mandrel to hold it on the on the pencil chuck. So I'm, hmm. uh, and I haven't decided yet how I'm going to do it. I think what I'm going to do is have a sleeve that goes through the inside of it, and then um, and then sort of uh, it'll be threaded on. Uh, on either end so that i can screw it down and uh, i'll Hmm. probably set it up so that i can put a bunch of them together and sort of cut them all simultaneously Uh, i think that'll probably be the best way of doing it so i need to cut to uh, turn a few more of those bands so that i can sort of stack a couple of them up together and uh, and cut them all all at once because i find that trying to cut just a single narrow piece like that is uh, is really tough because the lead in and the and the lead out end up uh having problems so you either have to sort of turn it oversized so that it's longer than it needs to be uh or you need to put some something on either end to sort of support it i guess it's a bit like when you're cutting uh teeth on a gear right if you're cutting you're cutting these tiny little gears you can't just put a a single gear onto your you know onto your uh, uh lathe or whatever and start cutting those those really fine teeth you need something supporting it on either side or else you're going to have problems mm-hmm. so it's it, the same the same kind of situation all right so i look look forward to seeing when the first ones start uh turning out yeah yeah that's uh that's high on my priority list and i'm also waiting because i'm i'm upgrading my tag mill with ball screws but i'm waiting for them to arrive i was hoping they were going to arrive last week but they didn't so maybe they'll come this week and i'll be able to uh to work on upgrading my tag because then i can um machine the wax for the lugs because uh, that'll be the next uh next thing on the list is getting those lug casts so that i can then cut the the channels in the center band to be able to uh to support them or where they you know where they're going to end up going so yeah a bunch of stuff like that uh, sort of a whole pile of things that are that are all sort of happening at once and some of them rely on others before it makes sense to to keep working on them was that tag is in t-a-i-g yeah yeah t-a-i-g the tag mill so one of the their mini mills yeah, I've I've had their both their lathes and their mills. In fact, their lathe is what I first started uh, turning pens on. I had little tag lathes that you mm-hmm. could get through Lee Valley, and in fact, that mm-hmm. was my first CNC lathe as well. I converted it to a uh, to a CNC lathe. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it uh, it wasn't particularly effective because I didn't understand anything about screws and efficiency and backlash and anything like that when it came to CNC equipment. So that was uh, that was definitely a an eye-opening experience but um hmm. yeah i've also uh i ended up buying their their mill their little desktop mill uh because at the time it was really them and uh sherline uh, when it came mm-hmm. to uh to mills and the tag mill is definitely more robust and better built than the uh than the sherline one is that tag cnc mill i have put that thing through hell I, i've 
I have put thousands, probably tens of thousands of hours on those lead screws going back and hmm. forth and cutting the, um, you know, cutting uh, barrels and stuff like that out of wax. The way that I cut them, I, I'm able to average out the backlash problems in the screws because it's just a simple V-thread lead screw that's in there. Mm-hmm. So it has massive backlash problems. Um, but I, I want to start doing some more accurate work. And uh, so one of the things I need to do is put ball screws in it. So anyway, I uh, I ordered some ball screws that are small enough to, to fit in there. Once they arrive, that'll be one of my projects is getting uh, getting it upgraded so that I can start uh, start getting some more accurate movement out of that tag. I'll be interested to hear how that how that goes. Yeah, and hopefully that'll it, it's still a it's only a band-aid solution. I I need to really upgrade past the tag into um into a, a significantly better mill. Um but at this point the the next step up is probably jumping past something like the Tormox and into you know a used Haas mill or something like that. Uh, you know, a little I was going to say, is there a Haas in your future? Yeah, it, it's it's not far off. At this point, it's it's really a space and money problem. Uh, once mm-hmm. once I've sold enough watches to be able to pay for a Haas mini mill, it's basically on order. So it's, uh, yeah, that that's really high on my list. So it's just a question of, can I get the first, you know, let's say 20 watches out the door without needing it? And I probably can. I don't, I don't see why not. It, they just, it'll take me longer to, to do them, so... Yeah, that's uh, that's high on my list. Same thing with a decent CNC mill or de- decent CNC lathe, I should say. Because if I can get a decent CNC, like a Haas, you know, lathe with, um, let's say, live tooling on it or a sub spindle on it, then that significantly speeds up the amount of time it uh, takes me to to make some of these parts, like some of these case parts and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see. But space and money those are my two biggest limiting factors right now. So once you've produced your first piece, uh, will you be double watching or you know, give the Apple Watch some shelf time for a little bit? I don't know. I know I'm going to need to wear that watch as a on a regular basis just to pro, you know, just to put it through its paces. But it's uh, the the Apple Watch is tough to give up as a sort of a daily wear watch, uh, especially during the day. I suspect while I'm here at home and sort of walking around the shop and stuff like that, I'll probably keep one on each wrist. I think when it comes to leaving the house for at least the first little while, I'll be wearing the uh, the mechanical one and seeing if I can live in a, go back to living in a completely mechanical world when it comes to watches. So I'm, I'm interested in, I'm intrigued by this. Unpack that for me. What's uh, <laughs> the, the mental, what are the mental gymnastics that you're having to go through uh, to go about creating a timepiece when you don't feel so inclined to to be wearing it. Well, this is the funny thing, right? Is that I I love mechanical watches and I love the look of them, I love the feel of them, I love the um the life in them. You know, I I love everything about mechanical watches. But the Apple Watch at this point is so convenient for me and and part of it has to do with my current lifestyle in terms of you know, expecting notifications from people and and tracking health and things like that. I think that as I move away from from some of the things that I do now, some of the projects that I work on now and whatnot, that I I will probably care less and less about the notifications. And particularly as I sort of start deep diving into manufacturing stuff, I suspect that fewer and fewer of those notifications are going to be important to me. So uh, yeah, I 
I, it's it's funny because as the watch gets better, I am probably going to walk away from it, and that's why I'm kind of hoping. You know, last the last episode when we were talking about sort of the future of AR kit and whatnot and other wearables, mm-hmm. uh, particularly glasses, I I hope that that comes sooner rather than later because I would love to give up my watch and gain the benefits of the watch, like the you know good notifications and things like that. And transfer them over to something like a pair of glasses where I can, you know, I can start getting even more information. I can start getting a heads up display and things like that. But I don't know. The the watch has been convenient in a lot of ways. Just I look at my phone less than I used to because I can, I know that if my watch buzzes and my, then, then it's something that I need to actually look at and decide whether I need to resolve it. Uh, but if my phone buzzes and my watch doesn't, I know that I can totally ignore the notification. It's not going to be something critical. So, and would you then relegate some of the the fitness tracking, uh, quantified self side of things to something like a, a fitness tracking ring? Like they're starting to hit the market now. Yeah, that might be a possibility. I I would probably still use the Apple Watch to be honest. I would I would be concerned less about sort of tracking over a whole day than I would be about just using it for tracking specific workouts and you know, tracking sleep and things like that. One of the things that I love the Apple Watch for is actually tracking sleep and, and having it wake me up. Using the vibrating function uh, of the alarm to wake me up in the morning is far more pleasant than waking up with some sort of loud sound. And I, I don't think I could go back to actually using an alarm clock that makes noise again. I, I It's just every every once in a while I need to fall back on it. You know, let's say I'm I'm out on... I'm out traveling or something like that and I've needed to to charge my watch overnight and I'm not wearing it and I go back to using my my phone and it making noise to wake me up in the morning and it it, it just drives me crazy. So I think that uh, I think the watch would probably be relegated to uh to an alarm clock and uh and exercise tracking. So yeah, we'll see. Any thoughts on ever Adding a an alarm based mechanical watch to your lineup. <laughs> I don't know. That's uh, I, I I love the idea of uh, of adding a uh, uh, either a minute repeater or a decimal repeater to my collection. Uh, that would be that would be nice to be able to do. But uh, I, I'm not sure about an alarm one. I don't know. I wearing a mechanical watch at night doesn't uh, doesn't excite me as much. I used to, and I have done it once or twice. But I would I'm not a fan of wearing mechanical watches at night. But the again wearing a Wearing the Apple Watch at night has has the advantage of being able to track sleep as well as uh, being able to wake me up mm. in the morning. So uh, there there are certain advantages to that. And you don't have the ticking time bomb under your pillow. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. It, it's I'm a you know I'm a a bunch of contradictions wrapped up in an enigma. Right. I don't know. Uh, I, I I love the technology, but I I love the old school. The old school stuff. It's the same thing when it comes to the, you know, something like the iPad and the Apple Pencil versus uh, a fountain pen and a, and a pad of paper, right? I, I love both and both have, have a place in, in my life. So it's just a question of, and, and that all shifts, right? As as the iPad came out, you know, I started using that obviously a lot as a, as for reading and, and for consuming content. But then as the pencil came out, the, you know, the ability to create stuff uh, definitely improved and so i've i've switched to using that a lot now for making notes and stuff uh, and and my 
my pen and paper use has changed in the way that I do that. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's always changing depending on what the technology is out there. That's, uh, that whatever works best. And I'm happy to use whatever works best in my, in my life. So I don't know. We will see. So what is the, the last or most recent full fledged thing you've created with your Apple pencil on your iPad? I meant to talk about this last episode and uh, and I completely forgot about it. I, I've gone back to using an app that I, I played with very briefly a couple of years ago uh, called Concepts. Uh, I think it's Concepts 5.0 is the one that's out now. It is a really nice drawing app that has a couple of key features that I love. Uh, it you know It has all the usual freeform drawing that you're used to from all the different sketching apps that are out there. But it also has a grid system that you can snap to as well as templates that you can snap to those grids so you can you know it has angled templates it has line templates it has uh, an oval uh, rectangle that kind of thing so you can very quickly and precisely create a template for you to draw with and uh, be able to accurately draw shapes that you want on you know onto your sketch and then after you've finished drawing out the those those very accurate you know sections of your sketch you can then easily add more freeform work onto it or behind it or whatever mm. uh, so it's, it's a really nice combination of a couple of different things that that rigidness that i that i really love when it comes to designing stuff as well as the freeform part of it which is which is handy when you're sort of trying to trying to figure out what goes in between the rigid stuff. And so lately I have been working on a picture frame. Uh, so this is sort of a Fabergé style picture frame with a silver silver sheet as the background with a guilloche and enamel on it. And then an oval picture frame in the center and, uh, and then a, uh, you know, sort of silver, silver frame around that oval as well as around the outside of it to sort of keep it all together. This is this is a, a pretty standard thing that Fabergé made, uh, you know, hundred odd years ago, and they they were pretty common as part of their collection. And, you know, Tiffany's and, and other people have done similar things. So, I, I've had a few ideas for doing this. It's a great way of showing off some enamel work, and I'm trying to trying to sort of exercise a few design ideas that I've had for years that uh, that I've been unable to to sort of get around to finishing. So. Yeah, so that's that's what I've been doing on on the iPad lately, and it's it's nice because I can start working on it as a sketch like this, and uh, you know before I go into something like Fusion three hundred and sixty, where that is all about precision and all about you know manufacturing or designing a or building a a model that's extremely accurate with with the sketching, I can I can do the freeform sketching that I need before I get in there, uh, but then it also you know, it has the ability to export, obviously, all that stuff, and I can bring those drawings into something like Fusion later and and be able to uh, use them as as references for the uh, you know for what I'm doing lately later. So yeah, it's a it's a nice combination of of features. And one of the issues I've had is getting the correct proportions for this picture frame, and it's something that I'm that I'm happy with. So with this, I've been able to play around with different you know, let's say a four by six or a a four by five or whatever, five by seven, I, I can sort of experiment with a lot of the common picture sizes, see how, you know, the, the oval that I have fits within the, the rectangular frame and, and see how those proportions work and see what I like. And, 
That's uh, it's nice to be able to do that. So is it something that's purely an avenue of experimentation for you? Or is it something you intend to sell at, at some point in the future? Uh, this first one I have a, I already have a particular uh, goal in mind. So this is something that I'm making and there is an, uh, an end customer in mind for this particular one. I will probably make a few different things like this that are, that are sort of similar. I've got a few ideas uh, for converting some mechanical clock movements into desk clocks. Uh, one of the things mm-hmm. I've collected a couple of over the years are the Waltham eight-day uh, clock movements that were very common in the early 20th century in uh, planes and automobiles. They were used as uh, the, the dash clock on a, on a car, for instance. And there are these beautiful little eight-day movements that are more watches than clocks, really. And uh, a lot of them have, uh, have been orphaned from their cases since the, the cases had gold in them. Uh, people have melted down the gold over the years. So orphaned from their cars and and orphaned from their cars. Yeah, mm. yeah. Anybody that happens to have a uh, a Waltham eight day clock movement with the car attached to it, uh, and you're you're looking to get rid of it, send me a note. I'm uh, I, I will take both off your hands. The uh, or the the plane for that matter. A lot of these these movements have been orphaned, and they're you know they're reasonably inexpensive. They they often need to be cleaned up a bit, and I'll probably do some work on them. Like. A lot of them, they're not jeweled, so I'll probably, you know, I'll probably go in and retrofit them with jewels and and a few other features that that make them a bit more uh, user friendly when it comes to uh, using them as a desk clock versus as a uh, as a dash clock. Yeah, one of the problems with these clock movements uh, from their original purpose is that they have a long stem for winding them that comes down off the bottom of the movement. And that's not exactly convenient if you're trying to convert it into a desk clock, like a, you know, in the, in the form of sort of a picture frame. Uh, so one of the things I'll do is I'll convert them so they can be wound, key wound from the face of the, uh, the clock that, that just requires a, a fairly simple modification. And, uh, oh, re- rewind. Yeah. Why not just turn it on its head and make the entire dome on the top of a desk clock the crown. You could just have this giant dome and just turn it and wind your <laughs> desk clock. Much simpler modification. All you have to do is change the orientation of the dial and you'll be making the dial from scratch anyway. Yep. Many desk clocks have a, a top to them of sorts. So it doesn't even have to be a dome. It can just be a an oversized crown. Yeah, that's, turned nice yeah that's, that's a possibility as well. And I might, I might play around with that. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't like the design aspects of that like i don't like the aesthetics of it uh i I think it's a bit cleaner having the uh having a you know a key wound in the face of it i don't know we'll see i i I still haven't uh you know i still haven't decided what i'm going to do with that it's it's a very easy modification to uh you just need to change one of the arbors that goes through the barrel there's two barrels on Mm -hmm. it so you can just put a you can just sort of extend it out and put a square uh square profile on it so it's it's relatively easy to do I've already got one that you know that sort of is a prototype in it, and it seems to work pretty well. All right. We'll have to see what works best, and I've got a couple of ideas, and and we'll have to see what uh, what I like and what I don't like. And you know, I've thought about also hiding the crown sort of in behind the frame, and either putting just sort of a long shaft out the side of the frame or the top or whatever, so you can use a key from the top to uh, to you know to wind it like that. Um, but I, I like the idea of either hiding hiding the crown or 
or making it so that it's uh, it's wound from the face. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm open to some ideas. Personally, not much of a fan of having a keyhole through the the face of a clock. That's why I tend to prefer weight driven clocks when it comes to to clocks or with pocket watches, the variants that are, are key wound, sure. having it set and wound from the back of the watch. Yeah, um, I'm not a not a huge fan of the the break in the hmm. the dial. Uh, try to try and keep things simple. Yeah, that's the other possibility is actually winding it from the back of the clock as well. So there's a few options available to me. So I have to decide what uh, which way I'm going to go with it and uh, and what what's happiest. Uh, I, I certainly haven't you know sort of committed to any one strategy yet. And I've got three or four of these movements, so I, I've got a few that I can experiment with and you know sort of see what uh, see what works best. Between a couple of picture frames and a couple of those desk clocks, I, I'm sure that I'll have a few of those available for sale at some point or another. Hmm. They'll be interesting, but as I said, it's it sort of gives me an interesting interesting avenue to exercise some design ideas that I've had, and I've been looking at Fabergé work for so many years now that I've got. I want to try and do sort of a modern version of some of what they did. I, th- I think some of the some of the execution on their early pieces was not particularly good. Uh, a lot of the stuff was just being mass produced, so the engine turning and the and the enamel work is not exactly exceptional. Uh, you know, not all of this was being sold to the to the czar. And being able to sort of experiment from a quality point of view and, and try and improve some of that would be nice. And then also the aesthetics from 100 years ago are different than they are today. So I, I want to try seeing how I can meld the, you know, the engine turning and the enamel work into a more modern aesthetic and see what I can do with it. And you know, see what uh, see what I'm happy with. It's a, a slightly larger canvas than than a pen or a watch is, obviously. So I can mm-hmm. uh, I can experiment a little bit. Yeah, Tech Philippe certainly goes to town each year on their desk clocks in terms of turning out the the rarer handcrafts. Absolutely, and that's and that's the nice part about it, right? Is that you've got some you've got such a large canvas there, you can you can do some cool stuffs. It's always something that it sort of gets pushed to the back burner whenever there's. Uh, there's other stuff that comes up like the you know watches or or pens or whatever they usually end up being uh, sort of pushed to the forefront but this particular desk clock I've got a particular client in mind for it so we'll see what uh, we'll see what comes out of it and hopefully it's something that I can get done in the next few months well from the sounds of things you've got an expansive stovetop <laughs> stovetops I don't think I could handle a single uh, a single stovetop at this point in I I don't think the largest stovetop would be large enough for me. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore hand. This week should be interesting. I've, uh, I made a, a, an order into cousins, got a few, uh, a few specific toys for my, my watch build. So I, I got my taps and dies for doing some one millimeter screws. So I'm going to be, uh, hmm. be making my first watch screws this weekend, I think. Nice. Should be interesting.
I have never made screws this small. They are yeah, they're tiny. Probably not quite an order of magnitude smaller than my my smallest screw, but they're uh, certainly an order of magnitude smaller than the screws that I I typically make. So it's uh, or the threads I typically make. So it's going to be interesting. I usually use the the threading accessories on your your lathe. Well, I am I am used to uh, to doing that. Most almost all of the threading that I do is all is all using the uh, the lead screws on the lathe. So uh, even though I do have taps and dies that I use occasionally, uh, when you're threading external threads at a larger scale, taps tend not to work very well. Uh, they tend to be uh, they require a lot of force to be able to uh, to be able to cut, and it's mm-hmm. difficult to keep them uh, axially aligned while you're initiating that cut so you can you know you can have alignment issues with uh when you're using a die whereas uh when you're cutting using the uh the lead screw in the carriage it's uh it's very easy to keep your your threads aligned properly and axially correct to your uh to your part yeah this will be interesting because this this uh die is absolutely tiny it's uh kind of ridiculous how small it is yeah and I'm terrified of these taps. I I ordered three of them, but I'm I'm sure that I'm going to end up snapping some of these. Uh, slow and steady. He's on. He's off. He's on. He's off. <laughs> Lots of lubricant. If you were drilling out a hole for a one millimeter tapped hole, what size? Uh, what size would you would you drill that? Have any guesses? I don't have a fixed ratio. I have always just eyeballed it. Um, mm. I do like just just slightly wider than the like if you stripped away all the threads and right, just the down root the, of the, the post. Yeah, the root of the, yeah, the, the tap. The root yeah. of the, the tap. And I go like just like a hair is excessive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a hair would to be use excessive. a turn of phrase. Yes. <laughs> uh, a, a hair larger. But okay. uh, a fraction of a hair larger than that. I picked up some uh drill bits in various sizes i've got some 0.95 some 0.9 some 0.85 and some 0.8 millimeter drills so i'm gonna experiment a little bit to see what works best and because uh, those threads there's, there's not a lot of thread there i i would be surprised if i even got down to the 0.85 i suspect it's going to be a 0.9 or a 0.95 millimeter th- drill for that 